Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm really, really good. How are you? I am doing great. Last time we talked, I was away and I had a great time, but I am so glad to be home, back in my own house, back to my routines, back to my family. I'm awesome. What have you been up to? Yeah. Uh, well, this last week I was getting back from vacation and settling back into real life. So that was good. But now uh, I've, I'm really happy to just have my weekend, kind of reset my all of my rhythms and be ready for the work week again. So I'm doing pretty good, although it's a little hot here. It's up over 100 degrees. So uh, I'm sweltering a little bit. Yeah, it's been nasty here, too. I just... 100 degrees is just disgusting. It really, really is. But but what's on your mind? What have you been thinking about? Yeah, so I'm actually intrigued to talk about a topic that I don't know that a lot of times we talk about much in evangelical churches, and that is the topic of confession. And mm. I know that you know the the Catholic Church has the practice of confession where people go and literally confess to the priest and, you know, whatever. And then I actually recently learned this, that some sins are just kind of your normal, everyday, day in and day out sins that actually get covered by saying part of the mass. And so for those, you actually don't have to go to confession, but it's for like the bigger things. And I don't know where the line is between those two things, but at any rate, that's somebody who recently just got uh, baptized as an adult in the Catholic Church was telling me about that, and I thought it was fascinating. But it's not at all what what I mean by confession, although in evangelical circles, we threw out that model, and we didn't replace it with anything. We didn't really talk about confession. I don't know, maybe I have my church history wrong, but I, I kind of feel like from that point forward, we didn't really talk about this. Is that how you understand church history as well, or at least our modern moment? Yeah, I mean, I think back to what limited amount of information I have about how pastoral care was done throughout the generations. And like, you think about some of the classics, like Richard Baxter wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. And if I'm remembering this correctly, he basically said, a pastor should have a meeting with every one of his parishioners at least once a year to check in. Honestly, if that's the standard, not a lot of authentic confession is probably happening at that point. Yeah. And I don't know how much relationship gets built in seeing somebody for a conversation just once a year. I mean, I stopped going, this is such an idiosyncratic thing to say, but I stopped going to get my hair cut at like a salon or a barber or whatever, because the person cutting my hair was always super chatty and was like, you know, interacting and how was your day and all these things and asking me about my life. And I'm thinking, I'm going to see you once every couple of months. I, I don't really like, I don't want to answer these questions. <laughs> right. I don't know you. You don't know me. We're never going to get to know each other. I would, this is like not what I want to be doing. And so that was oh, like, oh man, there's gonna... a, there's a, there's a, a workable idea here. You could start a chain of silent barbers. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know. Barber. I haven't been in a barber shop in forever. Maybe now everybody just puts their headphones in and that's actually what is happening, but I don't know. It isn't. Um, I take my son to the barber 
every month or so, though my wife cuts my hair. So, nope, they're still chatty. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. But confession. Well, but yeah, but confession. So, I mean, I can't imagine if you just met with your pastor once a year, like I saw my barber more than that, and I didn't feel like I got a relationship out of it. So, but yeah, no, I guess I'm intrigued by this verse in the book of James. And it says, uh, James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Mm. And and the second half is the one that we tend to focus on. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I think that part of the verse is well, well known. But the first half of the verse, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed, is kind of foreign. And if I think about the definition of spiritual friendship, which is something that you and I have cultivated over these last 20 years, confession is a part of that and it might be the most tender, most central, most vulnerable part of a spiritual friendship that I could actually think of in this present moment. Yeah, absolutely. Boy, it's interesting. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And now I want to go in two directions with the conversation because I want to dig back into that verse in James because I have it in front of me too. And I have like a bunch of thoughts about it, but they would not take us in that direction. So where do you want to go first? Do you want to go to James first, or do you want to talk about what you just said first? Let's talk about James, and I want to get your thoughts on that verse. What do you think it's doing there, and why we need to, maybe maybe you don't think this, but I think we need to resurrect this verse and implement it in some really thoughtful and creative ways in our modern evangelical churches. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I would, in order to give you my take, and I fully acknowledge I come at this verse as a clergy person. I do not come at this verse as a member of the laity. And I don't want to overemphasize those words. And I, I don't actually believe in the significant distinction that I just described. However, in practical reality, I am coming at this as a full-time pastor, which drives me to do at least one thing, which is to back up a little bit from that verse. I actually had that verse pulled up as soon as you said, this is what you wanted to talk about. I was on my laptop Googling that verse, and I want to back up to where I think the thought starts, which is in verse 14. In verse mm. 14, it says, is anyone among you sick? Okay, if you're sick, what do you do? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All of this is about having a conversation with the elders of the church about whatever's going on in your life. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I think the word healed there forces us to acknowledge that the full context of the thought is the prayer for the sick starting in 14. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. He's tying it back up, which tells me one of the inferences I make there is that the one another 
doesn't necessarily mean peers. Interesting. I think this is saying, confess your sins to the elders of the church, not just confess your sins to a random other Christian. I will have to think more on that. I totally took it as peers. See why I had to like pause and say, which direction do you want to go in this conversation? Because I, I agree with you. And I can tell you why in practice I agree with what I think this verse says. Yeah, please. I want to hear more of your thoughts. Go for it. So let's imagine a couple of situations. A spiritually immature person reads this verse and randomly confesses to another spiritually immature, immature person. Is this going to go well? Mm, right. 100% uh, no. <laughs> They are going to get advice. It's going to get be bad advice because it's from a person that doesn't know anything more about Jesus than they do. And second of all, there is a self-humbling that happens when you confess to somebody who matters in your life that I think is powerful, that in practice— makes a difference in whether or not somebody's healed of their sin. I don't have lots of Bible to back that up, and I don't have lots of theology to back that up, but my experience, both as a pastor and as a Christian, tell me that the act of confession should hurt. It should be a part of dying to myself, crucifying my flesh, that kind of stuff. I guess what I would love to know then— can the same thing be accomplished in a spiritual friendship, in a peer-to-peer -peer kind of thing? Or does it have to go from, say, one level to a, a level above? Yeah, it's a great question. It's so funny. I did not think I had a lot of thoughts on this topic. Um, <laughs> but clearly, False. I am more than competent at being opinionated. Um <laughs> But And here, here would be my take on that. A command to confess to church leadership does not mean, is, does not imply a command not to confess to others. So it's not like it's wrong to have confession or to confess to friends. You take the, the more broad language of like 1 John. 1 John 1 just says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That seems to be a very peer-oriented, I'm just walking in the light. So I'm being real because that is the nature, I, that is the place I've chosen to live. And I am being appropriately transparent with anybody that I'm talking to. Now, that doesn't mean I go spill my guts to everybody I talk to, but mm -hmm. I, the light is on me. And so I'm not proactively hiding. And so whoever I'm talking to, whatever depth of relationship I have with that person, as a non-hiding human being, I share whatever I share. Warts, bumps, brokenness, and all. Mm. You know, you bring up such a good point, uh, this idea of darkness and light. And I think that regardless of the person to whom we are confessing, 
just living in the light of Jesus is a great way to describe what confession actually is, what's actually transpiring, and what it does in our souls. Mm-hmm. And so I actually, this is kind of funny, I had some recommendations to go to Denver Seminary. My college roommate that I just respect, he went to Denver Seminary, he got his MDiv there, he recommended it, I'd heard some other good things about it, but in the process of checking it out, there was this line in their values statements that they put on their website that jumped out at me. And when I read it, I said, I want to go to a school that affirms that. And here it is. I'm just going to read like the second half of this line. I mean, literally, it's part of a sentence. Drag us out of our hiding places so that we can move into the light of Christ's searing gaze of love. Drag us out of our hiding places so that we can move into the light of Christ's searing gaze of love. And this What is hold on, what is the context of that? That sounds almost like a prayer. It's and not I a want prayer. it to be a prayer that I pray every day. <laughs> it's not a prayer, as I recall it, because I've just like kind of taken that quote and I've carried it around with me. So I don't remember the context oh, perfectly. It's but beautiful. It is beautiful. And I think it was in reflection of like who we want to be as a community. Mm-hmm. Um and that we want to be people who are willing to be dragged out of our hiding places into the searing light of Christ's gaze of love. So yeah. this is, this to me is exactly what confession is, because mm-hmm. you said something earlier about the, the fact that it needs to hurt a little. And that's where that searing word comes in for me. This is, mm. this is kind of painful, but it's this searing gaze of love, and we're, we're dragged out of our hiding places. We're brought into the light. We're exposed, and that exposure hurts, mm-hmm. but it, it burns off what was there and purifies what's underneath, and we're left whole and we're left healed. I, I love the fact that where, however you understand James 5, it is absolutely in the context of being healed. Confession mm. and healing go hand in hand. Absolutely. Um, well, and, and you know, you, the flip side of what you just said is so true that confession, not only does it give you a chance to kind of experience that searing, but it gives you a profound opportunity to stand in a place and let your Christian brother, sister, pastor, whoever, extend the full and uncompromising love of God to you as a fully known human being. Mm, Yes. And that's powerful. Yes, it absolutely is powerful. And that I actually have two competing examples, a negative example and a positive example of that very thing. I listened to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and a number of our listeners may have listened to that as well. It's such a well-done podcast with uh, just some huge examples in it. One of the things that they would do in Mars Hill that had mixed results was they would get into these super intimate small groups. And right out of the gate, 
you would confess all of your sins to one another. This was like just part of like getting real. And I'm I'm drawn to that and repulsed by that all in the same moment. And I'm drawn to it because of, you know, this this searing gaze of love, this coming out of the shadows and into the light that is so restorative. And that's I think what was the goal behind these things. But what you're saying though, if I can rephrase you and, and kind of add my own spin to it, is the response of the other person is just as important. Yeah. If if they see and receive and it's non-judgmental and it's I don't expect anything from you in this moment. Where you are and who you are is okay because you are covered in the grace and the love of Christ. And I can rest in that. And I want you to rest in that. Even as I receive this information about where you've been and and all the things that you've done and all of that. So this non-judgmental see you for who you really are moment is an important factor. And so I think that's, that accounts for the mixed results that Mars Hill may have had with this is it really depended on the small group at hand. Some of those people were going to use that information really, really wisely and others, not so much. Well, and, and the other piece of this, uh, and I know next to nothing about Mars Hill's situation and I have not listened to the podcast. So I am making an observation about a potential way that could happen, not about the way Mars Hill did it, because I don't know what Mars Hill did. But let's imagine a small group where starting day, everybody confesses their junk. There's two things that I think could go wrong with that. Number one, confession as an act of living in the light, of knowing one another deeply is inherently time-dependent. And that is as it should be. Healthy people require the people in their lives to earn the right to know what's going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. Healthy people don't be like, oh, you go to my church, let me spew at you. That's (laughs) not good. Yeah. Please don't ever do that. Just, you know, I mean, I say this over and over again at my church to, to people, but... I I mean, I've said this over for years. The only entrance requirement for going to church is that you admit that you're a sinner. This is not a guarantee that people will do a good job at anything. Right. Right? Like, if you know everybody in the room is a sinner, let's make sure they earn the right to hear your deepest, darkest secrets. So that's number one. I think there's a time piece that makes that inefficient. It's like trying to make relationships efficient. (laughs) <laughs> and relationships yeah. can't be efficient. No. You need to see people in high moments and low moments and tough moments and hard moments and good moments and celebrations and the whole thing. It's really important. But then the other part of it is if we're putting all our junk on the table on day one, we are very, very narrowly defining what it is that I need to confess And there are a lot of things that I'm embarrassed about or ashamed of or feel awkward about that are true of me that wouldn't necessarily have to go on the table on that first day. A lifestyle of confession requires me to live out loud. You know, a a simple example of this is that this Wednesday, 
I am going to be seeing a new therapist. I haven't seen a therapist in several years, and I've noticed some things about how I'm living and responding in the world that are not what I want, and I'm going to see a therapist. It is mildly embarrassing to acknowledge that I am going to see a therapist. Hmm. Should it be? No. But is it? Yes. And so I live confessionally by intentionally letting that come out. But would that come out that first day? No. So I I don't know. It, It just seems very inauthentic to me to sort of turn it into a one-time event rather than a lifestyle and to turn it Mm. into a a task instead of a relationship. Yes. Yeah, and so getting into the spiritual friendship aspect of things, I mean, like time and connectedness is a part of that, right? I think... I don't want to, you know, sit here and put you on the couch and psychoanalyze you, but if if I were to take an educated guess, I would suspect that the way that you basically introduced yourself and and said, "Hey, I think we should be friends." The way you did that was to come up and say, "Hey, I need somebody to tell me when I'm being an idiot and I think you're that guy." That those were your words, but I mm-hmm. think you may if I'm, you know, postulating correctly, you may have been testing the waters. I think you're a guy I can trust with all of me. And are you willing to walk that journey with me? And Absolutely. So we signed up for that together. And over time, we have built up that trust. We have built up that ability to confess at a deeper level. And I think one of the other things that I don't like about the model that I described at Mars Hill is the fact that it's inauthentic, it's fake. And it's not because people are being disingenuous, but no. there is there is a surface level to confession. And then there is, there's a whole lot of heart language and there's a whole lot of mm-hmm. rationale behind those sins or those actions that really, if you're going to really engage in spiritual friendship, or if you're really going to engage in deep confession, you're going to get down into those motivations, right? What is prompting me? What is going on in my soul where I feel I need to respond in that way, whatever sin it may be? And when you're really confessing at a deeper level or and maybe confession at that point is too strong of a word or too formal of a word. Maybe I should say exploring yourself at that level, as you say, kind of out loud or uh, in the light, in the presence of a friend who is going to be non-judgmental in that moment and just receive whatever exploration happens. Boy, that is, you are suddenly, you are seen, you are heard, you are understood, you are still accepted in all of the muck and mire that you just found out about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, this hits one of the questions that I would have about confession, and I I couldn't say it any better than what you just said. I think one of the dangers of confession is that it will stop at the level of confessing my sins and never dig deep enough to actually confess my inherent sinfulness. Mm. 
Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Uh, uh, yes, you're exactly right. Because it, it's easier. It's easier to say, I lied about that. I'm angry about this. I was impatient about this thing over here. It's a lot harder to dig in deep. And you're absolutely right, by the way, to go that next layer down to start asking the who am I as a broken person kinds of confessional questions. You need a safe space to explore. You need a safe audience. Yeah, you do. And I think even more than that, you have to be safe with yourself, which sounds like a goofy thing Mm -hmm. to say. But I think of Dan Siegel, who is a neuropsych, brilliant researcher and writer and yeah, all of these things. He's just amazing. And he's influenced a lot of other amazing people. You know, I think of Andy Kolber who is just amazing. And, and I think of uh, Kurt Thompson. And you know, so I've, I've really benefited from their writings who in turn have benefited from Dan Siegel and I've read some of his stuff. But anyway, Dan Siegel coined this term that is really helpful called your window of tolerance. And this is something that uh, you can be aware of when engaged in therapy, or I would argue also confession when do you start getting flooded with emotions? When do you start reacting to the things that are going on in you and your heart starts racing, your your mouth starts watering, you start sweating, you start getting agitated, you, you know, whatever the physical cues may be, it's an indication that your body is feeling unsafe in this moment and mm-hmm. Your ability to think rationally, your prefrontal cortex, your that front part of your brain is starting to go offline and you're going much more into your emotional brain. And, you know, if it keeps progressing, you're going to hit fight or flight or freeze and you're going to be in that mode. And that's not where we need to be when we're exploring ourselves or when we're in confession or therapy or whatever. We need to be within our window of tolerance where every aspect of us, including our prefrontal cortex, is online, ready to engage. And Dan Siegel calls that this window of tolerance. And Mm. so your window of tolerance, I think, has to grow in your ability to confess. So just as the relationship is growing, just as your trust of somebody else is growing, your ability to stay within your window of tolerance is growing. And so going back to the Mars Hill model, where you just like all at once, day one, let's just get real with each other. I think it's a fake real. Like you might think you were super honest and in that present moment, you probably were, but there's more layers and more things that you need to get to that could never be possible in that moment. Mm. Man, I'm just like, what did you call that? Uh, stress tar- uh, that that window of space you need to be in. What did you call that? Window of tolerance. Window of tolerance. As a fairly intense person, one of the mistakes I have often made, I think, in my own life is to push myself beyond that into the fight, flight, or freeze space. And that is what I think can happen sometimes in those quick, everybody confess stuff right now. Go. Right? You're you're exiting the window. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of catapulting yourself way past it. And I, I, I'm not sure that's helpful. 
As a matter of fact, I think that could potentially be quite harmful. Yes, it really could. And this is something that I've learned about myself is I I sometimes want to go really far, really fast. Because I think you and I have spent a lot of time over the years getting to know ourselves, getting to know one another. We've developed a real comfort in our relationship, and I've developed a comfort level in other relationships where I can be very, very deep and honest. But I sometimes I find within myself a desire for another person to be just as far on that journey. I want to be like, all right, let's get into it. We've got, we've got layers and layers, man. We don't, we're going to dive in. And before I know it, I'm pushing somebody outside of their window of tolerance because I'm excited to get to all the things that are underneath. And this person's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I I was on step 0.5. Can we start there, please? And I am recognizing that about myself and, and thinking about going into you know therapy in a few years after I finish my degrees. That is something I'm going to have to watch in myself is, am I pushing this person outside of their window of tolerance? And it's an interesting question. We have all sorts of people that are small group leaders, pastors, associate pastors, uh, just spiritual friends. And that's a great question for everybody to keep in mind. Am I pushing somebody else beyond their window of tolerance? Man, that's good. I'm just having to pause and reflect on this because this is a new concept to me. I actually have not read anything by Siegel in general, and I've read stuff by some of his students, but not by him. And so this is just a new concept for me, and I think it's super helpful. We can come up with all sorts of excuses Hours easily being, we've been friends forever, that are excuses for avoiding that idea. And maybe this is the question. How do you know you're in that window? Let me ask you that. What does that window look like? What are the indicators? I'm really just digging into this myself for the first time. How would you describe that window in practical terms? I cannot recommend enough the book by Andy Kolber called Try Softer. She does a great job of pulling from all of these great thinkers, including Dan Siegel and, you know, Besser van der Kolk and all of these trauma-informed specialists. And uh, she distills all of this. She herself is a Christian therapist with trauma training. And so she does therapy for people with trauma. And in fact, the Mars Hill podcast recently came out with an episode that talked about spiritual trauma and the host of the podcast interviewed Andy Kolber to talk about trauma and how do we like begin to repair from spiritual abuse and spiritual trauma. And so she did a phenomenal job both on that podcast and in her book, Try Softer, to talk about how you know when you're in the window of tolerance and how to get Ooh. back into the window of tolerance. And in a nutshell, I, I hope I don't misrepresent her views, but I agree with her in that you really have to sense your own body. You have to know uh, where in your body trauma or tension or things lives. And so when you get into that mode of fight, flight, or freeze, or I think she says fight, flight, or fawn, which is like a 
over willingness to please somebody else. But mm-hmm. anyway, when you when you get into that mode, where where does that tension live? Does it live in your shoulders? Does it live in a racing heart? Does it do you get agitated and uh, start you know fidgeting with your hands? Do you start moving in your seat? You know, if you can notice these things about yourself and notice that you're starting to escalate and then pause, and she has a variety of different tools for recentering yourself, uh, various grounding techniques, and including, you know, naming three things I can see or naming something I can smell or thinking through a beautiful scene or something like that. And to just like bring yourself back into this present moment, be oriented to person, place, time, space, whatever, calm everything back down and then re-engage the topic or move on to a different one if that one was too much. So that's a brief overview of what she says, but seriously, go read, try softer, or listen to the most recent episode on that podcast. She just does a great job. Man, and that is one of two books that you recommended. Did you read that towards the end of last year? When did you read that for the first time? Yeah, you know, so it's the same class that I read Managing Leadership Anxiety. I read That's exactly what I was going to say. You were yeah. you recommended those two books and you came out and you said these are both amazing and you have to read them. And this is on my list and I'll have to bump it up because boy, if this is as good as Managing Leadership Anxiety, I am pumped to read that book because uh, it just sounds excellent. Yeah, it was, it was. So, and it's super short, actually. It's, it's an easy, easy read. She did a great job of putting only the essentials in there. It was great. If this is new information to any listener, I highly recommend that book. It was a little bit of review for anybody that had like read Dan Siegel and Besser van der Kolk and other trauma-informed specialists. It was a little bit of a review, but so well done, it's still worth the read. Mm. Well, and for those of us for whom it is not a review, what a valuable book. How do you pronounce her first name? So it's Andi, and I'll spell it A-U-N-D-I, Andi Kolber with a K, K-O-L-B-E-R. I'm looking at it on Audible right now. She narrates it herself, which is always exciting to me when the author narrates their own work. I just enjoy that a ton. Sadly, no Australian accent. Oh, maybe I won't listen to it. Just (laughs) kidding. Um, Man, I'm excited. Yeah, I'll have to dig into that. So are there other things that are on your mind? What are your thoughts this week other than about confession? (laughs) Well, I have to confess. I do have other Uh, things. uh, uh, I wish I had some of those old school dumb radio announcer noise things that they had just because I want something that like makes it incredibly obvious how disappointed I am with that joke. (laughs) I've thought about, since I do all the editing for the podcast, I've thought about throwing those little noises in there every now and then. And then I thought, no, it's just, it would just be too distracting, even though it would please me very much. But, um, but anyway, so here's my thought. Uh, I'm ready. I, I ran across this uh, this phrase in Psalm 89 that really jumped out at me. And so here, here it is. I, let me just read Psalm 89 verses 12 and 13, and I'll give a, a quick thought on it. You created the North and the South. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. 
Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. I was actually really drawn to this idea of Tabor and Herman being noted so nonchalantly. So like, of course, everybody knows what I'm talking about. And I didn't grow up in Israel. I don't know the geography. This is not something I know anything about. But for every single original audience member, they absolutely would know these these two places. And there are two mountains. One is Mount Hermon, which sits at the very northeastern edge of Israel's territory, kind of a border demarcation with Syria. And so everybody knew Mount Hermon. It was about, it's about 9,000 feet tall. It's covered in snow. Like it's a prominent thing and all of Israel would know what it was. And then Mount Tabor kind of sits uh, about southwest of the Sea of Galilee, uh, not too far from Nazareth. And it was even visible in Jerusalem. And for it, it's only about 2,000 feet tall, but in the geographical area, it feels a lot taller because everything is pretty flat in that area. And so you can see Mount Tabor from a variety of places, and it's kind of a way of navigating, and some trade routes went by there and all of these things. So very, very significant mountains for Israel. And I think what I realize about this and many, many other verses like it that just assume you know the geography, the Bible is very local. It, mm. it talks about a particular people in a particular place. And I was trying to imagine what this would be like for me. And I grew up in and around the Portland area. I know we talked on the podcast about me growing up in Boring, which was just south of Portland. But then I also spent a significant chunk of my growing up years in the city of Portland itself. And so for Portlanders, nothing stands more prominent than Mount Hood. And just like Mount uh, Heron, it sits off in the distance in the east it's uh, over 11,000 feet tall. It's got snow on it. It's this prominent landmark you can always see in the east from Portland. And Portlanders just feel like it's their mountain. They just, you always see Mount Hood. And then we actually, <laughs> Portland actually has a Mount Tabor as well. And it sits kind of in the middle of the eastern part of the city. So I was thinking to myself, what if the Bible had said, in this verse, Mount Hood and Mount Tabor. This is the, the geographical equivalent for a Portlander. And this matters to a Portlander in ways that are really kind of hard to express because you, you have events that have taken place on Mount Tabor. In fact, our church would go to Mount Tabor, which is actually, a, uh, actually an old extinct volcano, and it has a crater. Uh, even though it's not a huge mountain, it's it's not snow-covered. It's very much like the Mount Tabor in the Bible. Um, but we would go to the crater on Easter morning, and we'd have an Easter sunrise service in the crater of Mount Tabor. And, you know, you've gone sledding on Mount Hood, and you've gone skiing or whatever you've done. My camp was in the shadow of Mount Hood. It's all very local, and it has significance for us. So there's emotional connection to the geography that is embedded in Scripture that I want to recover by trying to place it in my childhood context. Mm. 
Well, I was going to use this as an exciting moment to announce the 2023 On the Phone with Josh Holy Land tour, but apparently <laughs> that is not the direction you're going with this. No, no. You, um, I'll just put on a little uh, tour in Portland. So, you know, if you want to come to Portland, <laughs> Oregon, I'll meet you there. The, the final steps of Jesus, if they had happened in Portland. <laughs> right, right. Oh, man, that's awesome. Nevertheless, despite my goofing around i that's awesome you know every time we think i think about something like this i always think about eugene peterson regularly talks about the fact that there is something very earthy about the bible story literally it gets wrapped up in dirt and sand and grass and trees that you can actually touch and place matters and in some ways i think you capture that better by transposing those places into places you know rather than abstracting it out of any place at all. Yes, exactly. And that's good stuff. So you're up. Tell me your thoughts. All right, I'm up. Well, my thought is really a continuing thought from the last time we talked. We were talking last time about the Enneagram, and uh, I was midway through a book by Christopher Hertz called The Sacred Enneagram. The first half of the book is overviewing the Enneagram, and the second half of the book is engaging spiritual habits, and particularly habits around determining a unique spiritual growth path for each of those nine Enneagram types. And so to give you two examples of this, as a... Enneagram 6, my type tends to deal with anxiety and fear and often covers that by hiding behind a leader. That way I don't have to trust my own sense of the world. I can just put it off on them, let them make the decisions, and then do whatever they think. And a 6 often has a spinning brain that is all over the place. And so the pathway forward that he commends is to engage silence. That is to say, to to practice stilling the mind as a way of coming to terms with the underlying fear and need for safety. Hmm. Uh, And I wanted to try this out with you. If I'm remembering correctly, you are an Enneagram One. Is that correct? It is. It's very, um, very correct. All right. And so I don't want to summarize in two sentences what a one is, but can you do that for me? And then I want to tell you his suggestion for you, and you tell me if you think it fits. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. So yeah, a one is all about perfecting either themselves or their environment and very focused on getting things right. They're very, they're very single-minded, but it can be directed to a variety of things. Some people are really intense about their house cleaning. Me, I'm a little bit more drawn to like moral perfection within myself. And that's how it applies particularly to me. Yeah, and so his 
and I really recommend, I'm not even quite using his words in order to not over-technicalize this because he's fairly technical in the way that he deals with this in some ways. And he makes a great argument for where he's going with this, but his commendation for a spiritual path forward for the Enneagram One is to embrace stillness. Just be still and let that be the place where you can be enough without trying and you don't have to fix anything. I'm curious your initial reaction to that. Yes, I think of all of the different ways that I have sought spiritual growth in the last couple of years, and they all have to do with silence, stillness, slowing down, not being active. I mean, I literally multitask all day, every day. I'm doing a bunch of different things, and it's hard for me to stop because I have 15 things undone or in process. So yeah, just to stop and be still is a really hard but powerful thing for me. Yeah, and this is what I think is interesting. So he he basically says, of the nine types, three need to wrestle with silence, three need to wrestle with solitude, and three need to wrestle with stillness. And I suspect he is right. And he breaks it down more than that, and I don't want to go into it for an hour, but... I just think that's a really fascinating way of bringing together spiritual habits and and contemplation and engaging contemplation from the unique place that our personality and temperament lands us. So Mm. fascinating way of bringing two ideas together for me. Well, I'll tell you what, even if he's wrong, I can't imagine anybody being worse off in our society by pursuing any one of those three. Absolutely. I I think, you know, if our society was different, he may have three different answers. But Mm. for Enneagram users in our world, and I think he is spot on on you. I think he's spot on on me. And as I played this out with several other people in my own head, I think he's got he's on to something. That is that is a great thought. Thank you for sharing. So I want to turn to the audience and say, we love hearing from you, whether you know us personally and you want to reach out via text message or whether you want to reach us on social media, we want to hear from you. We are actually simplifying the way that you can reach us. We are really going to focus on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, particularly Facebook. It seems like a large percentage of our audience is on Facebook, but we're going to be on all three. So come find us there, engage with the content that we're putting out there. We're often reflecting on some of the key moments from each episode. And so we want to hear your thoughts on those. We want to hear your reflections on anything that happens on this on these episodes. Building community and growing these ideas through community is exactly what we're here to do. So uh, we look forward to seeing you online, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On the phone with Josh, just search any of those and you'll find us. Mm. And uh, also with that in mind, talking about our social media, this week we reported that one of the two Joshes 
ran his first marathon in 2013 with a final time of three hours and 54 minutes. Any guesses which Josh that is? Well, the one thing you know is that it is not me. In fact, it is Josh from Oregon. Yeah, I did. It's the one and only marathon that I've run. And if anybody saw me today, they'd be like, "Woo, you've put on a little bit of weight since a marathon runner, huh? Um, but mm. it was it was a great experience. Uh, the training for it was intense. I was actually working night shift and training for a marathon. And we had three young kids. So it's just a lot of moving parts. But like I said, I'm an Enneagram one and I wanted to you know, if I'm going to be running, I may as well go all the way and do do a marathon. So I I did. It was a great course. If you ever if you're a runner and you want to check out a really fun marathon course, it was the Light at the End of the Tunnel Marathon. It's going through the Snoqualmie Pass up in uh, Washington, just uh, east of Seattle, and it was beautiful. And it was pretty much all downhill. And it's a Boston qualifier. So if you're looking for a BQ time, I recommend this course. It's phenomenal. It's beautiful. I just had so much fun that for the first 20 miles, I didn't even know I was running a marathon. The last That's 10K, awesome. I absolutely knew I was running a marathon and it sucked. <laughs> but... <laughs> so uh, thanks again for another great conversation. I yeah. I love these. Yeah, me too. So... Are we on for uh, next week? 100%. All right. Well, I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. All right. Talk to you then. All right. Bye. Bye.